Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, Martin here. Before we get started with this week's podcast, I have a big favor to ask. If you like Policy Forum Pod, could you please leave us a quick review on iTunes? It'll only take 30 seconds or so, and it'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. Also, a cautionary note. Today, we're going to be talking about some things that some listeners may find troubling. Now, let's get on with the pod. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and this region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to welcome Sharon Bessel as my co-host today. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, and she's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm really well. So how's your week been? It's been pretty busy. I've been in Tasmania for a couple of days, but it's been a good week. So at the beginning of each pod, we go over some of the big policy issues that have been playing out over the previous week. So tell me, Sharon, what's caught your eye in the wide world of policy? Well, there's a lot going on. Um, And of course, we're going to be talking about um, issues around countering violent extremism today, which have been, I think, in everyone's mind in the news. But I wanted to pick up on this story that came originally from Al Jazeera um, and has now um, been, been discussed by others in the media around James Ashby and Steve Dixon, both both One Nation, um, Steve Dixon, uh, the leader of One Nation in Queensland, and James Ashby, um, Pauline Hanson's chief of staff, so both closely associated with that party, um, being in the United States and spruiking for cash um, to be able to have their way in the Australian Parliament, which I think is just incredibly disturbing on so many fronts, from the issues around gun control right through to what this kind of behaviour does to democracy. It's a pretty incredible story, isn't it? It really is amazing. I mean, it's it's shocking. And I think I think it was James Ashby that said, you know, they'd been set up. Well, yes, perhaps they had, but it was also a, an incredible piece of investigative journalism. And the fact that these comments were being made and that they were engaging in, in um, discussions that were really about undermining the Australian democratic process is just appalling. Yeah, very interesting story indeed. Now, uh, what I'd like to talk about, Sharon, would it surprise you to know that I want to talk about Brexit? That does not surprise me in the least. I just hope you're going to keep your calm because I know you're becoming more and more exercised about this. I am going to keep my calm because actually I think this week there has been a touch of positivity in the whole slow car crash that is Brexit. So I want to signal, highlight three things that have happened over the past week. The first is that the parliament has voted to essentially kind of 
take control of the Brexit process by doing a series of what they're calling indicative votes. So they can gauge different ideas and test whether there is actually parliamentary support for different ideas. And I think with all the politics that's been played with Brexit over the last two years, that is potentially a positive development. The second is I want to highlight that huge march that happened in London over the weekend about uh, a second vote, a people's vote. The estimates put it at uh, more than a million people taking to the streets, a very positive, very warm-natured march. There was no trouble or anything like that. Uh, the third is I want to highlight the uh, petition that is on the UK government website. So on uh, the UK government website, anyone can start a petition for anything. When it reaches certain numbers of e-signatures, the parliament is obliged to debate whatever that uh, um idea put forward is. And uh, someone started a petition to revoke Article 50, Article 50 being the legal mechanism that the UK triggered in order to uh, start the two-year process to leave the European Union. Anyway, so they started this uh, petition to revoke Article 50. And last time I checked, that petition is now up to 5.7 million signatures. So for me, Brexit has been terrible. It's been uh, a, a vivid display of uh, democracy and our democratic institutions going wrong. We heard some of that on last week's podcast. But I think this week we've seen some examples of when these types of things happen, people aren't necessarily going to they're not passive. They're not going to take it lying down. They're prepared to speak out. They're prepared to come out in force. They're prepared to uh, express their views. And even an, an online petition isn't necessarily going to change government policy, but it certainly changes the atmosphere around the discussions around Brexit. And as we saw with the climate strike a couple of weeks back, where young people took to the streets in huge numbers to protest uh, the, the failure of politicians and policymakers to really tackle the issue of climate change, it can really change the nature and the discussion of a topic. So where do you think it's going to land in terms of Brexit, Martin? Do you do you have optimism in terms of what the outcome will be or is it the process that oh. has made you feel a little better about that slow car crash it, that you talk about? It's definitely the process that's made me feel better. I have no idea whatsoever where it's going to land. It's such a fast-moving story. It's very hard to keep on top of. And who knows where it might go. But yeah, the process has certainly heartened me this week. That's a good news story. Yeah, for once. (laughs) We don't have enough of them. Now, we can't wait to dive into this week's podcast, but before we get going, just a quick reminder that our great Facebook podcast group is looking for you. If you want exclusive insights into what's going on behind the scenes, you want to chat to our listeners and our presenters, then just jump onto Facebook, type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and come and join the gang. It'd be great to see you there. And talking to great podcasts, one you might really want to tune into if you haven't already is our friends at The Familiar Strange. So here are The Familiar Strange with some details of our favourite anthropology pod. Hi, I'm Julia Brown. I'm Ian Pollock. And I'm Simon Theobald. Some of your familiar strangers from the Familiar Strange podcast. The Familiar Strange is a podcast about doing anthropology. 
That is about listening, looking, trying out, and being with. In pursuit of uncommon knowledge about humans and culture. The show alternates between in-depth conversations with experts and senior academics about the ways they think, write, do research, and navigate the academic world. And panel discussions, where emerging anthropologists like ourselves take a look at our worlds using what we've learned as students of anthropology. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And find our blog at thefamiliarstrange.com. Is that it? That's it. Excellent. Check us out and keep talking strange. Thanks very much for that, Familiar Strangers. So today on the pod, we are taking a look at the issue of countering violent extremism, radicalization, and the role of mainstream and social media in the spread of violent footage and hateful attitudes. The brutal attacks on two mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand two weeks ago shocked the world and claimed the lives of 50 people. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern rushed through a new firearms policy and openly showed her solidarity with the Muslim community. And on this side of the pond, though, Australian Senator Fraser Anning shifted the blame onto Muslim immigrants, saying that Muslims were more often the perpetrators instead of the victims. And while these comments united many on the social media community in calling out lies and hate speech, YouTube and Facebook in particular were also the stage for brutal live-streamed images of the Christchurch attack. Mainstream media broadly criticised social media's slow response in effectively removing the content, although outlets such as the UK's Daily Mirror called the attacker an angelic boy who grew into an evil far-right mass killer. So today we want to ask, does Australia have its countering violent extremism, also known as CVE, settings right? Do policymakers have a blind spot when it comes to right-wing extremism? And are social media and the mainstream media pulling their weight in regards to preventing violent content spreading? And we've got a fantastic lineup of guests to discuss these questions, haven't we, Sharon? We have. Um, once again, it's an amazing lineup of people to talk through these these issues that are just so disturbing and so pressing. So we have Jacinta Carroll, who is Director of National Security Policy here at the National Security College. She was previously the inaugural head of ASPE's Counterterrorism Policy Centre. So lots of experience to bring to this discussion. We also have Professor Matteo O'Neill, who is an Associate Professor at the University of Canberra and also an Adjunct Research Fellow um, at the ANU at the School of Sociology. His research focuses on incorporating communication studies, the sociology of fields and controversies, and and online research methods. He also works around um, social network analysis, so it'll be really interesting to hear Matthew's take on some of these issues. We have Anush Mushtaq, who is founder and chairperson of the Rakib Task Force, a Muslim-led organisation that builds social inclusion through engagement across the Australian community to dispel extremist messages. And Anush is also um, a lead consultant to members of the Australian Government's Countering Violent Extremism Services Panel. And we also have Professor Caroline Fisher. Caroline is Assistant Professor in Journalism at the University of Canberra. She's a member of the News and Media Research Centre and co-author of the annual Digital News Report Australia. Her research interests are trust in the news media, journalist source relations in a digital era, an issue that's becoming, I'm sure, more and more complex, and disclosure and transparency in journalism. So a really amazing set of panellists to talk through some of these really difficult issues. 
Yeah, I can't wait to hear what we're going to cover today. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion ahead. Now, before we get to that, though, a reminder to our listeners, please do get in touch with us. We love hearing your comments, your questions, your thoughts about what we talk about. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter. We're Apps Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or the very best way, join the Facebook gang. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into your Facebook search bar, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. Stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your comments, but we have also need to tell you about our grand plans for the upcoming 100th episode of Policy Forum Pod, which we need your help with. So stick around. We'll get to that after the main interview. But for now, let's meet our guests. So thank you to you all for joining us today. Hello, Jacinta. Hello, Martin. It's very good to be here. It's great to have you back. Welcome, Anusha. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here. Hello, Caroline. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And Matthew, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So two weeks ago, the terrorist attack on two mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand left the world stunned in the face of really unspeakable violence. While New Zealand is still trying to come to grips with what's happened, questions are being asked about whether policymakers have their countering violent extremism, also known as CVE policies, right, and indeed whether they're properly targeting right-wing extremists. So I want to start this discussion with a very personal story. Anusha, you recently wrote a powerful and very personal piece on Policy Forum, Why Women Adopt Jihadi Ideology. And in it, you wrote about your own experiences with radical ideology and that uh, social exclusion and feelings of alienation pushed you down that path. And you talked about how your family wasn't conservative when they moved from Pakistan, but that the influence of the Muslim community in Australia changed their way of thinking, which in turn pushed you to become more and more religious yourself. It's a really terrific piece and well worth a read. So I'm interested, Anusha, what are some of the lessons that policymakers can draw from these factors that you highlighted in your piece driving the radicalization process? Yeah, thank you, Martin. Um, I think uh, from the Muslim community point of view, what I've seen is that uh, people like to shield their culture and religion. And it's not limited to only Muslim community, but also we've seen Asians, Italians, Greeks, they all do the same. Uh, But from that uh, piece and other um, publications that I've written and um, also been speaking at various forums, I think the CVE policies, um, as I've always mentioned, have been uh, more towards marginalizing Muslims. It's very focused on Muslims and Islamist um, terrorism. We haven't gone broader to look at uh, there could be other issues. And um, it was funny that I was uh, watching this uh, movie, actually, which was called um, uh, Black Clans Man, uh, and it is about um, KKK. And it actually shows exactly what we're doing now. So at that time, it was the black people. Now it seems like it's the Muslims. And that marginalization is dangerous. And I have said this again and again, the more you focus on Islamist extremism, the more terrorism will rise. Because that is exactly what Islamic State and Al-Qaeda want. They want this hatred and they want a focus on Muslims so they can recruit them. And that's what we have seen what's happened recently in Christchurch. So Jacinta, I wanted to bring you in here. Um, 
When we hear Anusha explaining what's going on here um, in terms of the way in which we respond to the potential emergence of, of violent extremism, it seems relatively clear about what we should be doing and that should be around inclusion. But we seem to have real challenges in creating policies that address the issues in the way that Anusha just described them. So why is that? Why are we facing such challenges in terms of the way we think through the policy approaches? One of the the themes that keeps coming through is it's very easy to see a violent threat when it's manifest. And what I mean by that is that when an attack happens, and sadly we've seen this in Christchurch, uh, within a day... Friday morning, New Zealanders woke up with a terror threat alert level of low, with one incident that was raised too high and and their entire world has changed. And I would say Australia's environment has changed as well. What this means that in terms of uh, government response initially, because governments are usually charged with safety and security and investigating crimes and so on, that it's very clear that something needs to be done to protect the rest of the community. Um, Anusha and I have been at many conferences where we've heard police and others talk uh, with passion about uh, trying to ensure that the communities that are most affected are not alienated through this, but the prison that they work in, the counter-terrorism environment, is about preventing attacks. So investigating people who look like they may, may be on the radar. And of course, there'll be a lot of questions asked about why this person apparently wasn't. There's a lot of focus and attention there. There are resources that follow. And it's also something where it, it, in sometimes it's, it's a, in some ways it's a bit easier to legislate. There's a high focus of communities to ensure that there is protection, so that the population is protected from an attack. All of this attention we see, again, as police often say to us, well, we can't arrest our way out of this. This isn't something that it, that it is for counterterrorism investigators and police to stop and prevent. So something has to happen earlier. And that something is extremely complex, even as we hear Anusha's incredible story there's there's something very personal in it. Uh, there are a range of factors that may lead someone to radicalise, and there's a range of theory about that and different mechanisms that, that various groups use. But trying to completely prevent that is something that, that doesn't appear to be possible. Better ways of doing it, of course, um, are there. I'll quickly mention two things. Uh, one is that in the Australian context, uh, the way of preventing extremism or even de-radicalising has tended to be run by the states and at community level. And governments typically are giving are funding particular communities because they're best placed to be able to do something. And going to Anusha's comments, well, it's clear that you would then focus on communities that are most affected, that seem to be targeted. Um, and in Australia recently, that's primarily Muslim communities, but not not exclusively. And that can then create the perception, and we've seen this quite extremely in the UK, that while there are good works happening there, that it really is focusing on one community that, you know, aren't that big a problem. Uh, very, a very small percentage of Australia's population support terrorism, very small percentage of the Muslim population. So it's very difficult then to tease out how we best do that. The second thing is, by contrast, a different approach. We've seen a masterclass from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand where she hasn't talked about where this has come from. She hasn't focused on 
a community. She hasn't, whether and regardless of this being right wing or or um, other forms of terrorism, and she hasn't done what what you know we call othering. She hasn't said there's a fight between us and them, and this is probably the most powerful thing you can do in building resilience. On the thirteenth of March, March the. Secretary of Australia's Department of Home Affairs, Michael Brazillo, um, gave an address where he talked about the seven threats to Australian security in the future. But right-wing extremism wasn't one of those. So does that suggest that Australian policymakers have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to right-wing extremism? It's interesting. I looked to that um, that, that day. I'd been um, talking to some, some people about it. And it's interesting. He does specify Islamist terrorism or Islamist extremist terrorism. And gives a good reason for it. And it's one that's backed up by the enormity of that threat Islamist terrorists, not Islamic, Islamist terrorists, uh, do present the largest terrorist threat globally and do account for, I think it was 20,000 deaths around the world just last year. Uh, Right-wing extremism, for example, accounts for um, double figures rather than thousands. So there is something about, about relative. One of the other threats he identified was entities that are seeking to under, undermine liberalism and liberal democracy. It, it's clear that Mr. Pizzullo's, um particular examples and focus were other countries, authoritarian countries. But what we're seeing in terrorism in general, and particularly in right-wing terrorism, is organisations that are seeking to attack human rights. They are inherently racist uh, by definition, and they are seeking to undermine the lawful uh, authority of governments in liberal democracies and exclude people who they say aren't, don't belong in that in that community. And there's a very strange, um, historically inaccurate and oversimplified definition of what of what that community should be. So I would say that it, look, it was a short, sharp description of his seven threats. I'd say that they kind of covered were covered a little bit in the, these these areas that he spoke about. But the world changed just a few hours later. The heads of Australia's intelligence agencies got together last week in Canberra to really dive into this, what are we doing about right-wing extremism and is it enough? As our regular listeners will know, we always like to put out a call to our listeners to ask whether they have questions to put to the panel. And this week at Digby Howes has has asked on Twitter, um, and I think Jacinta, you might be best placed to at least first respond to this question from, from Digby Howes. Um, does Australia need a debate to expand or change the definition of ter- terrorism in the Criminal Code Act of 1995 so it is inclusive of right or left-wing extremism? What would you say to, to that question? Yes, we need a debate. But secondly, part of the reason we need a debate is that our law is actually agnostic on the source of a threat. Um, that's not unusual in, in common law countries. So the definition uh, in um, the various relevant legislation, uh, Crimes Act, the Criminal Code and, and various others, talks about politically motivated violence and then it does have descriptions of terrorist organisations and there's a fair few f- permutations on those, but they're not actually uh, limited it talks about religious motivated, politically motivated and others. They are regularly reviewed. But the thing that's most interesting about Digri's question is that what I've heard in a lot of public discussion in the last couple of weeks is that that element, the nature of our legislation, isn't well understood publicly. So 
Uh, we all need, those of us who work in this space and talk about it publicly, need to explain more. And it, it is beholden of governments to describe what these laws are and talk more about who they're investigating. I'd like to move on to talk about social media and how social media responded in the wake of the Christchurch attack. Because on the day, there was that horrifying live stream footage uh, on Facebook and on YouTube, and the platforms really struggled to contain that. In this week's Policy Forum pod Facebook group survey, we asked you, our listeners, whether social media companies are doing enough to tackle violent extremism on their platforms. Most of you answered that extreme content should be banned, but that censorship needs to be avoided. Some of you also supported the idea that they should be legally enforced legally forced to approve content in particular videos prior to publication. So I want to bring you in here, Matthew. Why is it so difficult for social media companies to keep a lid on the spread of violent material or other sort of radical content? It isn't when you're talking about Islamic terrorism. They've pretty much shut it down. So it's interesting to compare the reaction to both, I think. And there's different reasons why there's a why it's harder to combat uh, extreme right-wing content. Um, And I guess there was a parallel that was made at the beginning uh, between the two, and they both come from a sense of grievance, I suppose, but the the sense of grievance of of Muslim people is probably rooted in history of colonialism and international relations since the Second World War and what's going on in the Middle East, whereas the, you know, the the, the cause of the right-wing extremism and other... Uh, people in that sphere is a reaction to perhaps, you know, immigration, but also it's about feminism and it's about lots of other things. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wide discussion. But just to, to go back to the point about what, why the difference, there's, there's several answers to that. One of them is, um, you know, the, the, uh, right, the right-wing people, they were quite clever in that they did not advocate for murder, whereas Daesh, as we call them in, in Europe, um, or ISIS, they... Um, they, they were advocating for crimes for murder. So that way they got the, the right-wing people got out of that sort of net. Another reason, obviously, is in the United States, um, right-wing terrorists, for example, they are local citizens. So it's much uh, more difficult to prosecute them than, and to, 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 to other them than people from other countries because, you know, they are, uh, they are, after all, citizens of the United States. And then the... Probably the one of the things also that, that plays a role in radicalization is the role of algorithms and the role of the, the platforms. Uh, the, the start of a lot of this online extremism was not in places like Stormfront and you know the Nazi party and all that stuff. It was actually Gamergate 2014 when there was a reaction against women introducing more progressive ideas in video games and there was a, a sort of outcry against that. And it kind of meshed with the libertarian, anti-authoritarian, hacker, anonymous mentality. And it's been taken over by this sort of reactionary politics. But what's interesting is how people who are not radical become radicalized. And they they become radicalized because of the algorithms, because of the way that when you look at a video on Gamergate, instantly there's another video that pops up in your feed about – social justice warriors and how horrible they are. And then inst- you watch that and then instantly there's another one about, you know, racism. And instantly this – and so insidiously you become part of this continuum and you don't even realize that it's happening. It's just the content that's proposed to you. What what you then get is 
some people talk about filter bubbles, some people talk about echo chambers. And I think they're not actually synonymous. And I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but there's quite an interesting distinction to be made. Filter bubble, you can think about it as the the information that you get from your social media, from your mainstream media, etc. And But if somebody says, well, actually, that's not true, and you will look at the evidence and you'll change your mind, okay? Echo chamber, you can think about it as somebody who believes in a in a, in a misguided or malevolent authority so that everything that comes from that authority makes sense. And it, this, this authority could be Rush Limbaugh, it could be Pauline Hanson, it could be Donald Trump. And anything that contradicts it, you will not assess it on the basis of evidence. You'll, you'll assess it on the basis of whether it contradicts the authority. And that's why you have people who are anti-vaxxers, climate change deniers, etc. And everything that contradicts that, it's just a conspiracy that is being produced by the mainstream media, by whatever, and it's very hard to reach those people. So I think that's, you know, there, there are these, these phenomena that are happening online, and the problem with the social media platforms is that they are based in the United States a lot of the time, so they have very um, liberal or, you know, permissive uh, rules when it comes to freedom of speech, and also um, they're transnational, so it's very hard to regulate them. But I want to just go back to the thing I said at the beginning about the difference between the reaction to Islamic terrorism and right-wing terrorism is that there is definitely um, you know, a more permissive well, – there has been a more permissive attitude towards the uh, right-wing terrorism than towards Islamic terrorism. Can I make a couple of comments on that? And I have probably <laughs> saying as I, I'm sitting here in the studio next to Anusha and we focus on – terrorism and countering violent extremism. So it's fantastic hearing that expertise coming from a, a different perspective, if I can speak for you as well. Um, one thing is that there's, it, relating to terrorism but other issues, there's very good theory on propaganda and why propaganda works. Mm -hmm. And we've done some work picking up um, theory by, by people like Elul, talking about the stages that someone goes through in being receptive to propaganda. And they're, they actually link very nicely to the things that Mathieu was talking about. Um, and Anusha, because one of the first is that you have to have preconditions. There's something about your life or your worldview or mm. something that's happening that makes you receptive or curious about, about an issue. Um, the second stage is making contact. And typically it is in person. And we've seen this in our cases in Australia while the online. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Environment provides great facilitation and incubation that personal contact is needed and it may be online, but quite often it's physical, physical personal contact. And then we come to the echo chamber where you make this conscious decision to just have one source of, of authority. Um, but interestingly as well, these are ordinary people who can be live that life online and then step out of it and say, well, I'll engage elsewhere in the world, but I've got this other life online. So, mm. no, that's yeah, true. Very and interesting. It's not just for extremism, but also for people who engage in trolling. Yes. Like really yeah. repulsive behaviour, you know, taking people to the, um, to the, you know, to the brink of suicide or even further. And then it turns out, you know, they're, They've got three kids and they're lovely on the outside and nobody had any idea that they had this sort of other persona online. So naturally there is, there's no social cost for that kind of behavior online. But then um, 
this is the thing. It's that now um, the what what we saw with the uh, the the, uh, the terrorist in Christchurch is that the online and the offline are extremely well connected because he mm. was making in jokes and streaming it live. So he was, and the messages that he left just before embarking, it, it was very much signalling that this was a continuation. There was a, there was a a kind of um, you know homage being paid to his his community, and he was yeah. Anyway, I don't want to spend. I, I want to follow the lead of the. Uh, the, the, New, the New Zealand Prime Minister not spend too much time talking about Can I um, add something to that? Um, so, uh, I mean, I read, um, Jacinta, that you mentioned in SPS that uh, recently 900,000 were allocated to uh, countering online hate. Um, I think in my opinion, uh, and also I just read the ASD report, um, that they have um, brought down a lot of um, content from Islamic State and others, uh, Al-Qaeda, um, I think in my opinion, unless we start tackling the issues from the grassroots level, we cannot really tackle uh, uh, Islamist extremism. And this has to come from the Muslim community. So engaging Islamic scholars is is really important. So at the moment, I'm actually working with um, Pakistan Institute for Peace Studies, uh, and we're actually involving Muslim scholars, not imams, because there's a bit of a difference there. So scholars are more... Um, are well-read and they are um, certified from Islamic jurisprudence. And I think unless it be until we start taking the content that what they what they describe is they they tag the Quranic and Hadith uh, to lure people to radicalization, and that is very powerful compared to just showing beheading videos or anything. And it is the interpretation of Quran which they use to justify the cause. And that's the problem we're seeing. And unless and until we do that, no matter how much money we spend from the top-down approach, unless we start looking at the grassroots level, online, offline, we cannot tackle extremism. But I wanted to take this back to thinking of the the, the, the wake of that the atrocities that occurred in Christchurch. And, of course, hate speech um, or, or fueling division doesn't only come from one part of the community. So in the wake of the attacks in Christchurch, Senator Fraser Anning said in a press release, and I'm reluctant to, to quote this, but I will repeat what he said. The real cause of the bloodshed on New Zealand streets today is the immigration program, which allowed Muslim fanatics to migrate to New Zealand in the first place. Let us be clear, while Muslims may have been the victims today, usually they are the perpetrators. How do we begin to respond to those kinds of comments? And how do we educate at that level? Anusha, what are your thoughts on how we respond to those kinds of comments? So I think the political landscape, in my opinion, starting from Tony Abbott up till now has been um, uh, focused uh, and and there's a lot of hate speech which goes around and also marginalization of Muslims in the media, whatever they say. So it's not only Fraser Anning, but if you look at Pauline Hanson and she said that Islam is a disease, then Scott Morrison um, in the Melbourne attack last year said extreme radical Islam. These kind of things does nothing, but all it does is produce more terrorists. And I'm talking about the rise of right-wing extremism because they are fueling uh, what these people actually want. When we look at uh, Muslims in Australia and New Zealand, we are in a minority group. And there's very few people who actually go 
um, choose the jihadi ideology or go through extremism or radicalization. So we really need to think about what we are doing here because, you know, Pauline Hansen rocking up in Parliament House with a burqa and saying this should be banned or halal food should, food should be banned. There's a lot of Muslims, doctors, lawyers, um, teachers who are actually contributing to Australia. And, um, you know, even a person like me, I'm, I'm fighting against any kind of terrorism, Islamist terrorism. I'm educating people. So we need to realize that you know, hating Muslims or, or producing hate speech against Muslims is only going to uh, not help the politicians and the counterterrorism experts. And um, these kind of and even like um, immigration laws, what they're saying about Muslims and um, about opening up. Um, sorry, what was that um, offshore detention center? Christmas Island. Christmas Island as well. So it, it's all stigmatizing and stigmatizing is toxic in my opinion. I just want to add to that on the on the phrase around in peace. One thing that concerns me and we, we were discussing beforehand, we're mostly, you know, avid followers of current affairs and some of us of social media. And I was disappointed at the high profile that that had. Uh, I've been following international reporting about Christchurch and a senator who two weeks ago, most Australians probably wouldn't necessarily be able to name, uh, was getting headline news around around the world. It's also because um, he got egged. That helped. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. It, it is that um, very, very high profile. Um, Pauline Hanson as well. There's been... Uh, I would I would argue certainly my 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 experience I haven't seen so much documentary footage of Pauline Hansen uh, as I have over the past few years as I have in the past couple of weeks and this comes to narrative again if we look at New Zealand I wonder whether Prime Minister Ardern would have given as much airtime to discussing this issue as we have, and I say we, uh, our community, our media and our politicians, because talking about fringe politics and, and in the case of um, you know, One Nation, uh, let alone Senator Anning um, from his you know, and his previous, we're talking about 7% of the population according to current polls, 7% of the, po- of the vote. That's not helping a discussion that's trying to calm down popular sentiment. Uh, if you... Google the, Google what Australia's reaction is, uh, and I've had some discussions with international media. They all ask about One Nation. They all ask about Pauline Hanson and Fraser Anning. And that's where we need to get into a different space. Uh, and I think I think we actually did did make some progress in the way that the media handled, the mainstream media handled uh, the aftermath of the Christchurch incident, not speculating and really trying to calm things down. We also need to think that more Muslims actually die from Islamic State's um, terrorist attack. Mm. So last year when um, this guy in Melbourne, he, you know, was mentally ill, came with a knife and, um, you know, when Scott Morrison said uh, extreme radical Islam, 40 or 50 people died in Kabul in, in, in the mosque from Islamic State's um, uh, terrorist attack. So we need to keep that in mind that uh, these terrorists don't even consider us as Muslims, because they think that their ideology is superior to um, 
other a school of thought, I want, as, I want, as all extremists do. I want to come back there to something Jacinta said about the sort of global coverage of uh, Fraser Anning's media release, because that wasn't just driven by social media. It was also driven by mainstream media. And I'd really like to get you in here, Caroline. How do you think the mainstream media are coping with some of these very difficult issues, the sort of changing threats um, and responding when the, uh, terrible incidents like Christchurch is happening? Look, I think it's it's really difficult um, and I, you have to walk a very fine line and I think, you know, in all honesty, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. On the one hand, um, I guess one of the things that I'd like to pick up that you said, Jacinta, you know, about you're saying, oh, well, the people who support One Nation, it's only 7% of the population or whatever. If you remember back to when Pauline Hanson first came into the parliament and, in fact, there was almost this kind of censorship and the ABC wouldn't report it, et cetera, mm. Mm. and it fed into the whole mm. marginalisation of we're not heard, the angry white mm. marginalised person who was not being heard by the elites, mm. and it fuelled. So that mm. attempt at censorship yeah. was actually very counterproductive. So I think it's a very difficult argument to, to run about should we censor, how much airtime do you give these groups because, on the one hand, they arise because they're not being heard. Mm. So I think that's really difficult. Mm. Um, and there's no doubt about it that the media coverage, um, you know, around a terror event feeds into some of those main main themes that appear in, in all media and, and the key kind of news value that people talk about around journalism, you know, the, the, the conflict, the value of conflict. So, you know, obviously it's an act of violence, so there's the conflict in, within the act itself, but it's politically full of conflict. There's cultural conflict. It's conflict at every level. Um, and so that in its, you know, it's a tantalising and kind of wicked, a wicked news story in that regard because there's so so much of it's attractive to, to that conflict kind of paradigm of news. Um, Senator Anning... Um, I think it was, to be honest, I mean, I think it was the sheer audacity of someone saying that. I, I genuinely think that, I mean, journalists are human as well, and I think there is this general shock of, mm. my God, mm. did that person really say that? And I think that it's really unexpected. We're not, we aren't familiar with that, even particularly in Australia. You know, to have someone so brazenly come out and be so offensive you know, within the immediate context of such a terrible event. So I think there was genuine surprise uh, from the news media that this, that this had actually occurred. Um, beyond that, yes, it's, it's fueling the conflict, it's taking the story further, etc. Um, and at that time, there was a vacuum around, you know, there's only so much you can say at a certain time. There were niceties around, well, let's not try and, you know, let's temper our coverage of certain mm. aspects. But then when... It was like it was fair game. Oh, this is, an, this is an easy thing to report because we're actually trying to be quite delicate about other things. But the news cycle must go on and it's 24-7 and it's a bottomless pit and you've got to fill, your, you fill the time with something, you know. So I think there's a whole range of things fueling the coverage of Senator Anning. But I just think the audacity, uh, I think genuinely it was a shock. Carolyn, there's also been debate around the way the mainstream media covered the so-called manifesto that the person yeah. who committed the atrocities in, in Christchurch left. And some newspapers and media outlets refused to, to publish that at all and others decided to publish excerpts. What, what do you make of the decision to to not publish um, or to publish, you know, where do you yeah. think media outlets should? Fall it's a really difficult, like and I, I have to say, I watched Media Watch uh, that episode um, immediately after that, 
And I felt quite torn. I, I in fact, didn't agree with the criticism. Um, I thought, particularly for the broadcast media, let's face it, if you've got pictures, you're going to, if you haven't got stories, uh, pictures, you haven't got a story in broadcast media, in TV. Now, of course, there's limits and you do draw limits and you're not going to show the vision of the actual, you know, shooting taking place. But having the vision of him, it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's showing what happened. And I think that there is a legitimate use of certain limited material in that, in actually informing the public about what went on. Um, as for whether or not you actually talk about how are we as a society meant to understand this person's motivations if we don't actually get to see some of the manifesto? I think, again, limited explanation of that is really necessary. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. He didn't just, you know, um, act out of nowhere. There was there was this evidence. There was this stuff online. There, I mean, I think it's actually really important context. And, yeah. From sort a research perspective, me. we all agree with that because it is really useful to be able to see that. What, the thing that really struck me is, as I said, I, I've seen a growing maturity in mainstream media in particular mm. in how they handle this. And what I particularly liked was that you, you could actually see elements, for example, of, of that of that statement and so on, but that there was such a prevalence of media outlets explaining their decision-making process. Mm. So getting to your point, it wasn't censorship, it wasn't you can't, but it was the media saying we've actually thought about this from our editorial yeah. perspective and we're making a call one way or the other. Uh, and all of the ones I've read, and I've read different views, were all quite reasonable and sensible. Mm. Um, and they made different different calls and sometimes at different levels. But that shows a maturity about the way the media is our entree to all of this issue. Because the irony is in schools, for instance, my daughter, the next day in class as an, as an activity, they went and they read the manifesto from top to bottom and then had a discussion about it. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really important because I think one of the inspirations um, for this manifesto was actually coming from a quite unexpected area, which is the sort of uh, anarchist, primitivist, uh, anti-industrial um, sort of, you know, sphere. And uh, it reminded me of the uh, Unabomber Manifesto, the mm. Industrial Society yeah. and its Future, which came out in the 90s and which he had printed in the New York Times under duress because he said, if you don't print it, I'm going to continue with this campaign of bombing. And um, that manifesto and the primitivist um, philosophy in general is – is based on the idea that there's too many humans and we have to reduce dr dramatically the population to uh, save the biosphere. And of course, everybody wants to save the biosphere, but if you uh, recognize that it's based on a sort of genocidal uh, premise, then you know it's disqualified by, by definition. And the people who agree with that are Nazis. And so if you start saying, that, you know, Nazi, I think it's still, for most people, it's still bad thing. I think, you know, we, we haven't quite reached the point where it's acceptable to be a Nazi. So if you say this is actually a Nazi perspective, it's a genocidal perspective, which is based on the extermination of people, that's it. You're, you're not, you're not labeling them exactly. You're just describing factually what it's about. And I think that it probably, there will be a, a negative effect in the first instance that people will read it and be inspired and radicalized and stuff. But at the same time, if you keep it under wraps, it just gives it an extra mystique and an extra aura and it's the mainstream media trying to manipulate things. And I think at the end of the day, it's better to have transparency and sunlight to disinfect rather than keeping things hidden. I'll just throw in there that probably the halfway point is that we um, 
it, it's not about censoring, but how much attention are we giving to the sensible way forward, if you like, um, the discussions on uh, what what our societies can do and are doing to try to um, address uh, potentially damaging views and also to provide the, yeah, some factual information about what's going on, whether it's what laws are, who's being investigated and so on, just to help ensure that these extreme ends aren't the ones that are getting all the, all the airtime. We have covered uh, a lot of issues today and I think there are many, many more issues to cover. We could keep talking for a lot longer. Um, but in wrapping up for now, let me ask you each, if you had one piece of advice to policymakers or to social media platforms on how to better manage the threat of violence extremism, what would that one piece of advice be? Matthew, perhaps we'll begin with you. What what would you advise? Um, I guess trying to limit the the um, the stigma around debating ideas and about um, you know going to the bottom of ideas. I think there's a, a reluctance on both sides. You know, so a lot of people are reluctant to confront sexism, for example, in, uh, I don't know, in, in, in immigrant communities because it's a traditional patriarchal culture and there's still that issue you're, you're worried about being labelled a racist if you confront that. And so that can lead people to sort of, you know, hold off on some criticism because they, they fear that it's going to feed right-wing extremism or right-wing critiques. So, But the other way, like as I outlined just before, in terms of if there's a genocidal purpose, you know, if there's a kind of exclusionary and genocidal purpose behind somebody's ideas, then it should be called out. It should be, it, it, we should, ex, the media should do a better job of, of explaining in what way this is contrary to uh, humanity. And uh, I think that that would be helpful rather than focusing on the, um, you know, purely kind of um, factual or sensational aspect of whether we show the images or not. It's the, the ideology that needs to be confronted clearly. Jacinta? A, a couple of things. One is the we've had a lot of focus on online and social media. And one thing that is kind of misunderstood is that these are mega businesses. We, we think about social, social media as being ours. I, you know, I, I can be on Facebook, I can be on Twitter, and I organise my, my life. And it's a great enabler for modern society. It's a wonderful thing. But because it it exists in an environment that doesn't have quite the regulation that former forms of communication uh, and discussion have had. What we have seen is that that lack of regulation, not saying there needs to be more, but there needs to be some self-regulation and an acceptance with um, those media companies that they are still part of society. They have a responsibility to society the and yeah. the great enabler of liberal society that we that we have, particularly through these communications fora, is one that can um, also undermine that society. Face what we have seen Sorry. is that this has attacked. Facebook is denied until, I don't know, they probably still deny that they're a media. They just, they just put people in touch and they don't they, they don't write some responsibilities. So they they, don't, they they don't accept that they are a, a, a broadcast like a, a traditional media, which has certain public interest rules to yeah. respect. And they're worth the something like 140 billion US yeah. dollars. So I would challenge that. Um, oh, we just sit here and not do anything because they get those billions of dollars through pushing to you advertising from clients around the world. They are a business. They operate in our societies. They do have a responsibility to them. And as you mentioned before, Mathieu, um, two years ago, we saw 
I have to say, in response to countries like Australia and others through the G20 putting pressure on these companies. They, they came together in the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism and then quickly, by putting a bit of effort into it, took down 75% of uh, extremist propaganda um, put out by groups associated with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So they can do this if they want to. Absolutely. Anusha, what would your piece of advice be? My piece of advice will be get more Muslims involved in the policymaking, um, get more Muslims involved in... Um, in, in around in the security counterterrorism areas because they understand the cultural and religious aspects as well. But also a big piece of advice is that being vigilant for the signs of radicalization and supporting interventions is important. But more important is changing the tone of discussions in the communities, building community resilience. I'd like okay. to pick up on Usha's point there, and I guess but, but, but particularly for politicians and public figures, just really intempering their language um, and, you know, really steering away from language of division, particularly exploiting the immigration debate for political ends. I mean, that's just proving to be so toxic. And I guess then also in relation to the media, um, more education about um, Islam, about other cultures and diversifying the media. Um, it tends to be white Anglo-Saxon reportage. Um, the ABC and other places are making a big effort to diversify their workforces and uh, that needs to happen more broadly. I think in the resilience piece as well, we do have that example of Jacinda Ardern not uh, engaging in a debate or a narrative of the type that we've been critiquing. So we've got an example now. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much for your insights and for your wisdom today and for those pieces of advice that I hope our policymakers, those who manage our social media platforms and perhaps Mark Zuckerberg are all listening to. Um, thank you so much for your time. Jacinta, Anusha, Carolyn, Matthew, thank you. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Well, welcome back and thanks once again to our guest today. I thought it was a really interesting discussion which covered a huge uh, range of issues that sprang out of uh, uh, countering violent extremism in our communities. So what did you think of that, listeners? Let us know. We're really keen to get your feedback, your questions, your comments, whatever you want to say about the podcast. And you can reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. You can email us podcast at policyforum.net or best option, jump onto Facebook, join the Policy Forum pod Facebook group. You just find us as Policy Forum pod. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're keen to learn more about countering violent extremism or counterterrorism, you might want to check out the National Security College's Master of National Security policy. It's a great graduate degree. You can find it at nsc.crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. But if a master sounds like a bit much, you might want to instead have a listen to our fellow podcast, the National Security Podcast. Every couple of weeks, Chris Farnham discusses the hot topics driving national security policymaking. And you can find the pod on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, at the end of each podcast, we go over some of your questions, your comments, your suggestions. And what I want to do today is actually just take a look at a couple of suggestions for future podcasts. 
podcast because we're really keen to get your thoughts on the issues that you would like to see us cover on Policy Forum Pod. And they're incredibly helpful to us as well uh, in the editorial discussions we have and the planning that we do. So a new member on a, on the Facebook podcast group, Sanjoli, hi Sanjoli, wrote, I am interested in India, Pakistan, China relations, more broadly terrorism, nuclear weapons, Indo-Pacific and gender are some of the topics I'm curious about. And another new member, Caroline, hello Caroline, said we should have a look at death, stroke, dying and palliative care, non-paid caring and access to control over aged care services. Plenty to chew over there. What do you think about those suggestions, Sharon? Well, as always, great suggestions from our listeners. Sanjoli, what a broad range of interests you have, which is excellent. I think that's our typical podcast listener, interested in everything. Um, Sanjoli, keep watching because we may have something really interesting around gender in the next few weeks. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Now we're committed. No, I'm not going to say any more. Keep listening, folks. Oh, come on. You've got to tease a little more out than that, Sharon. No, 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 no. Just stay listening. There's a real treat ahead for you. Um, and of course, on, on issues around death, dying, palliative care, I mean, really pressing issues um, that, that Carolyn raises there. And there's some really incredible research happening around those issues here at the ANU, people like Christy Gardner across in law. So yeah, great suggestions. I think they would all be good podcasts. So thank you so much, Sanjoli and Caroline, everyone who's got in contact with us uh, for suggestions. Now, before we wrap up, I have a very special request to make. In two weeks' time, we're going to be putting out our 100th episode of Policy Forum Pod. It's a big one for us, and we need your help to make it happen. So for episode 100, what we're going to do is an Ask Us Anything podcast. It's the very first one we've done of these, and it will probably be the last unless we actually get some questions from from you listeners. Uh, uh, Your questions can be absolutely anything. They can be policy-related. They can be specific aspects of a policy. uh, They can be totally non-policy-related. So if you want to know how Australia should tackle climate change, we will give it a crack for you and give you some suggestions about how to do that. Or perhaps you're more interested in whether our presenters, Sharon perhaps, would prefer to fight one horse-sized duck or 1,000 ducks-sized horses. So whatever your question, however sensible or otherwise, get it in because we're going to pick the best and we're going to put them to our special panel that we're convening for that 100th episode. So as always, get them to us on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum, email podcast at policyforum.net or best option, leave them on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. It should be really fun. Sharon, can you give us a bit of a hint on the question about whether you would prefer to fight one horse-sized duck or 1,000 duck-sized horses? My guess is you're going to battle 1,000 tiny horses. This is a really one for me to answer. I was chased by a goose last time I was on field work <laughs> in South Sulawesi, so I'm not going to in, into battle against any kind of bird life, but I grew up with horses, so I'm going to take those 1,000 tiny horses and befriend them. But they want to cause you harm, Sharon. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I know you. I know you bear goodwill towards the horses, but in this imaginary scenario, they want to harm you. I'm confident I can win them over. 
<laughs> I will have them listening to the podcast and, and hitting that fifth star on iTunes before you know it. You're a good. thousand tiny horses supporting us. <laughs> You're going to use evidence and analysis to uh, to win to win an argument. Yeah. To win those little ponies over, absolutely. Okay, so there's a bit of a clue how Sharon might respond to that question. But what other questions do you have for Sharon or for me or for any of the uh, people involved in the podcast? Or you want to draw it out much broader and talk about a policy issue? We're really keen to uh, get those questions in. It should be a fun episode. So that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce-Cherio. And from me, Sharon Bessel. Bye-bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.